This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hi there, this is Mike Lord, and I am one of the hosts of Tabletop Genesis. And this is And the Mechanics Rocher, the other co-host. <laughs> Very good. And and we have a special guest this week because we are talking about the first Mike and the Mechanics album, which is simply called Mike and the Mechanics, self-titled. And we have as a guest, Catherine Stratton, who is a big Mike Rutherford fan. So Catherine, say hi. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. If you're hey. Mike and the Mechanics, I guess I'm acting very strange or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. <laughs> we will do that. That that fits better than Small Creeps Day, I guess. Yeah. You know. Well, so she's already you. got she's already got the puns down, so she's gonna fit in just just right exactly. here. Exactly. So, so Catherine, you are a big Mike Rutherford fan specifically, and also a big Genesis fan, I understand. So, so tell us a bit about how you got into Genesis in general, Mike Rutherford, Mike Mechanics in particular. What's your fandom all about with this music? Well, my fandom is all about the fact that I grew up in the 80s and it was really difficult to escape them. And I love a well-crafted pop song. So that's kind of what hooked me in. A few years ago, after I finished doing my master's degree, I decided, with all my free time, I'd sit down and listen to all of Genesis from start to finish, chronologically, and I just kind of spiraled out of control from there. (laughs) (laughs) So, So of the Genesis albums, do you have kind of favorites you go back to, or is, uh, is it all just, I love it all and it's all great type of thing? Invisible Touch will always... You know, that and this album that we're about to talk to of the mechanics, talk about from the mechanics, is all that same time period was really what started it all. So I think that's the one I come back to the most. And I love Mama and I love Abacab. Very cool. So if you're a child of the 80s, this was all kind of inescapable. Were you an MTV household? I was an MTV and VH1 household. Yes. So, yeah. You know, I was in my mid-teens at this point, and it was it was inescapable, <laughs> and you know, it was in a good way inescapable because it was it was music I actually liked and was into and everything, as were many people. But it takes a lot to start doing the deep dives into these things, so it takes a special personality. So. It does. And you, no, I was just going to say that as well. If you come at it really only knowing Invisible Touch and you start and you listen to the first album, you're in for a bit of a surprise. But it was a <laughs> as, very yes, good surprise. Right, especially if you're going chronologically. A, just realizing that, oh, this band goes back to 1968, 69 is kind of a shock. And then it's like, oh, and it was different people, and Peter Gabriel was in the mix, and, you know, who were these other people and everything? And they're teenagers, and they're infuriatingly talented. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, they were so young when they started. The So you also run a website. Tell us about that. I do. I run Mike Rutherford Net, which is, uh, again, started around the same time that I 
threw myself into listening to the entire back catalogue. I just, as I was listening to everything, realized that the songs that stood out as the ones I loved the most were the ones that Mike had a heavy hand in writing. Of all these solo albums, the mechanics were always my favorite, and I felt that they weren't getting enough love on the internet <laughs> when I was looking for you know, message boards or fan groups to join. There were some out there, and there are very dedicated fans, but there wasn't really a hub at that point, so I thought I'd make it myself. And so you've discovered kind of other people who are really into Rutherford's music and the mechanics and all that. And, you know, yeah. I've been advocating for, you know, re-release of both Small Creep Stay and Acting Very Strange, hopefully maybe in a 5.1 mix, because I think that the mechanics certainly gets attention, but I think those first two albums of his, even Acting Very Strange, just do have some quality music on them. I would love to see those kind of get repackaged and, and reintroduced to perhaps a wider audience that maybe didn't hear them initially. So. Me too. I would love them to do something like they did with The Living Years recently, that just beautiful packaging, and it's got the story inside of it and photos that we hadn't seen before from the recording time. And then finally, he will as well admit and prove that uh, George Harrison is on Acting Very Strange, which is the hill I will die on. But (laughs) that he plays that uh, slide guitar solo on Hideaway. Nobody believes me, but it's the truth. (laughs) <laughs> All right, that's a, that you're a you're a George Harrison truther with acting very strange. So good to know. We will well, we can dig into that and see what we can find out. I was curious, how does Mike feel about the site? Does he have a restraining order against you, or or what is he? Uh... <laughs> I feel like if he didn't like it, I would have found out by now. Somebody would have sent me an email and said, "Hey, stop it." And I would, if that ever happened, I, you know, at any time, I'm ready to cease and desist. So far, <laughs> I mean, so good. I mean, that's the ultimate. I think I would be so flattered if someone took their time to put the, that's a great site. Thank you. So I would think he'd be nothing but thrilled. Did you, have you met him? I have, yes. I've met him a few times. He's always very kind, very polite. And that's what I, I try to be very professional with the website as well. I'm not into gossip. I don't care about things like that. I just try to advertise whatever he's doing right now yeah i think that's that's always a great approach to take i think as fans it's very easy to sit back and psychoanalyze and play armchair psychologist about the music the musicians who we're into but it's all it's all just conjecture and that is part of the fun of it but the problem is when conjecture becomes truth and that's and that's something that we just don't know. So I think it's better to, you know, leave that in, you know, a certain area. We're all about the music here. We like talking about the music. So, Me too. So with that, we're going to jump into talking about this first album from Mike and the Mechanics. Tom, do you want to do the Wikipedia entry for this? Sure, I'll do the honors. Mike and the Mechanics is the debut album by the Genesis bassist and guitarist Mike Rutherford's band, Mike and the Mechanics, in 1985. The album reached number 26 on the Billboard 200 album charts and had three hit singles. Silent Running, featuring lead vocals by Paul Carrick, and the up-tempo All I Need is a Miracle, featuring lead vocals by Paul Young, both reached the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100 chart, peaking at numbers 6 and 5 respectively, with the former also peaking at number 1 on the Mainstream Rock Tracks chart. The third single off the album, Taken In, was a lesser hit, reaching number 32 on the Hot 100 and number 7 on the Billboard Adult Contemporary Singles chart. Silent Running and All I Need is a Miracle were also hits in the UK, 
reaching numbers 21 and 53 in the UK singles chart, respectively. It's interesting that the first album was bigger over here and not as big in the UK, but they had a much longer career recording. They were much more popular as they went along in the UK, because after the second album, they really kind of dropped off the radar here. So the third album really didn't do anything. And the fourth album might have... I remember, I think it was right after, for me, right after college in the 90s when I was like, oh, there's a new Mike's Mechanics album out. And I got it and I was like, oh, there's some good stuff on here. I thought it was better than the third album, but it didn't do anything over here. But it was really big in the UK, so it's interesting. And aren't we glad they didn't call themselves Not Now Bernard? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which was his original idea for the band name. That is a much, as, as... as light and silly as Mike to the Mechanics is, it's a much better name than Not Now Bernard. I think Mike to the Mechanics is fine, and it's probably, like any name of a band, it's like, it always sounds a bit silly when you think about it. But yeah, Not Now Bernard is is just not a good name. Right, it I just flows. The, it does, yeah. Mike and the Mechanics works so well for what they are as well. It's like Mike will always be there, and anyone else can join in at any right, time. exactly. <laughs> And that was the thing. This started out, from my understanding, as a band that wasn't a band necessarily. It, it was Mike doing demo stuff, wanting to work with other people. It kind of became a band over the course of the recording. Do you know more details about that? Well, I think when he started out, he really didn't want to form another band, and he really didn't want to do another solo album, just him. So you're really kind of caught for what do you do if you don't want to do either <laughs> one of those things. And I think this album, like later on with The Road, you can really see that it is a lot of people contributing. And once we get into the different songs, I'll maybe talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is really just more of a hodgepodge. He can put in, you know, bring all these little pieces that maybe didn't work for Genesis, but that he knows really work for him, but without having to do his own vocals. (laughs) (laughs) yes yes and we'll leave that for when we talk about acting very strange at some point (laughs) so that's uh i assume he did some backing vocals on this here and there but and i think he's a good backing vocalist i think he could probably blend well with other people but it's maybe the further back (laughs) (laughs) the back the really very back i'm not actually sure if he does there's a lot of backing vocalists i know he does live but uh, live yeah i didn't hear him but again, yeah. maybe he mixed himself <laughs> down. Right. Yeah, or if it's just if there's so many people in there, it's hard to really kind of figure out the blend of would that be Mike in the background there somewhere. So yes. I, I, I would always be amazed if he didn't, but maybe he didn't. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but when this came out, I, to me, it was just another band that was having hits on the radio. It was probably late 85, early 86. I wasn't a Genesis fan. I was a Phil Collins fan. I know that with no jacket required. But when this came out, it was just, okay, there's a band called Mike and the Mechanics. I didn't make any association with Genesis. It was just, I I liked Silent Running when it came out. I liked All I Need is a Miracle. But it wasn't until probably Invisible Touch came out when you saw more of Mike and you're like, oh, that's the guy that was with that other band where I kind of made the connection. So it was... It wasn't like I was waiting for this new side project to come out. It was just like any other band that was out there. I don't know if Mike, I remember you were about the same age. 
Yeah. Did you did you know what had the Genesis connection? I think I I lightly did, but I also at the time didn't know that much about Genesis. I think it was just when I was getting into Genesis, and so I knew from maybe like seeing the videos for That's All or Ma or um, Mama probably that like oh yeah that's the guy from from Genesis. But is he singing? Is it like I wasn't quite sure what he was doing. And so I think that, again, there was that that awareness of connection, but not as much of, oh, my God, this is a solo project. It was just like, oh, this is another band. And maybe not even knowing that it was the first album from them, just because Silent Running was was so much on MTV, from what I remember. You know, it was one of those songs that was played all the time on MTV and pretty much when I would get home from school, turn on MTV and just to even just have it in the background, not necessarily sit there and watch it. This song and Phil's stuff, you know, was stuff that was on heavy rotation there all the time. So that was, that was definitely my awareness of, of the track and knowing that I, all I need is a miracle. And I think the videos kind of told a, a, the three videos from this album kind of told that continual story of this band on the road and everything. I saw them live in 89 on the Living Years tour, but did not see them on this tour at all. So because Genesis itself was my first tour, first concert in 87, I guess. What a great testament that is for Mike's songwriting as well, that I didn't know for a very long time that the two were even related at all. And it was quite, quite a shock to find out and very excited by the connection but you know (laughs) to be able to start your own project with most people especially in the states probably not being able to put them together and still having a hit album must make you feel really good as a yeah as a songwriter yeah that's i think all of them when they would have this this success as as solo artists it is like oh you know it's nice that there's there's validation outside of the the genesis world especially when you're not the singer where it's it's a little bit easier to have that success because you already have that visibility people know the voice and i don't even know if this was sold as solo project from mike rutherford at all like i sometimes they put those stickers on the albums that's like solo project from so and so and it's like i don't I don't remember any of that, or I don't think there was. that's how this was sold. I don't think so. And I, in reading through this chapter in his book as well, I think he says he specifically did not want that on the albums. Which made sense, because it would, it would give a le- certain level of expectation that, oh, you're going to get these... You would get a different type of music, maybe, from somebody expecting Genesis, Mike Rutherford Genesis versus Mike Rutherford whatever he wants to do. There are certainly Genesis-y things about this album, but that's with every, all of the solo albums. And and it doesn't, it doesn't stick out any more than anybody else who would be influenced by that band in the mid eighties at this point. So, yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting way to put out a solo album without just slapping Mike Rutherford's name on it. Exactly. And I find it interesting as well that for this album, um, a lot of it was recorded before the vocalists were even decided on. So the, he went with like Chris Neal, I think, in BA, they went to Montserrat and they recorded a lot of the music, but they didn't know who was going to be singing it yet. And I think that I, I've heard, and maybe you know more about this, that 
that it was a lot of times they would have, you know, both Paul sing it or maybe even some of these other singers who were in the mix before they settled on them and just would say, well, who sounds better on this? You know, it was very much like, oh, you know, this might be better for Paul once they hear both versions. And I would almost love to hear the alternate tracks of, you know, Paul Young singing Silent Running or Paul Carrick doing, you know, All I Need is a Miracle. If those even exist, those would be interesting to hear. All right, so with that, we'll now go into the very first track on the very first Michael Mechanics album, Silent Running. So this is a song that obviously if you grew up in in the 80s, in the mid-80s, you couldn't escape it. It was all over the place. But listening to it specifically for this podcast, I just feel like, especially in the chorus, I can just get wrapped up in this song like a warm blanket. It is just so, there's just something (laughs) so comfortable about it that it was just like, oh, this, it's the mix, the kind of the sound of everything. I just feel very comfortable and wrapped up and cozy and warm in this song. Although it's a bit of an edgy song because it's it seems to be very kind of relevant to today's political scene too. But it's it's very much one of Mike's protest. I don't want to say protest song, but it's definitely a politically aware song in my head. It definitely feels like it should maybe have a harder vocal, but I think that would ruin it. It's Paul's softness. Paul Carrick, you can't just say Paul. Yeah, exactly. We need to be specific here. <laughs> really just mellows it out and gives it, as you said, that comforting quality. But just a general comment about this album is that a lot of the vocals on this album kind of belie the, the, the lyrical content of it. It lets you get away with some things that you maybe, if, if it was sung in the way that the lyrics are actually written it would be either too strident or too much out there. And so it's, it makes this, this song that has this edge to it very accessible. And then if you pay attention to the lyrics, you're like, oh, wait a second, what's going on here? It's like, this is almost like, seems like a, a, a military coup or something happening in this song, in the song that was used in, in a movie 
And but but I have to admit, I have never seen the movie that it's in. Neither have I. Tom, no, I have not. And it it's it's interesting because I also didn't know that they in some areas or some venues they give the the song an extra parentheses afterwards, so it's silent running parentheses on, on dangerous ground, ground. <laughs> which I guess was the. UK name of it in America it was called Choke Canyon. <laughs> Has a worse uh, ring to it. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, you don't want silent running Choke Canyon. <laughs> the video actually has a couple of scenes spliced in from the movie, but it's just, it's not really based, the video's not based on the movie. I don't think there's, I don't know what role the, the song had in the movie. Uh, so this is kind of like loosely tied to the movie. I did find it interesting that at the very beginning of the video, this guy hands the little boy a key. I remember that. He was like, here, take this key or something. That actor was Billy Drago. And if you've seen The Untouchables, he's the gangster who Kevin Costner throws off the roof towards the end. That's right. Real kind <laughs> yeah. of kind of strange looking guy, I yes. think, right? Yes, kind of, very yeah. odd. Uh, but Does he still have the key in The Untouchables? <laughs> so they fall out of his hand. <laughs> well, he gave the key That's to right. The boy. It all comes together. But uh, I think we were talking about the the ambiance of the song, just the warm blanket feeling. I think just from the the opening is just a tremendous opening. I just love that feeling that it evokes just from the get go. Uh, and I think like Paul's vocals, Carrick obviously from the from the verses, it's very direct. Like he's trying to get this message across, and then with the chorus, you have that echoey. Can you hear me? It's like kind of contact. So I think they, they just really did a good job of putting the whole emotion and the feel of this urgency of trying to connect. And I think that's why the song really stands out for me. It's just start to finish. It's a good song. Similar to what you said, that it also really has that sci-fi feeling. I know Mike likes sci-fi yeah. novels. And you do you know, have the, the bass pedal that repeats that kind of feels like a, a pulse almost that goes with it. And you do feel distant and you almost feel like you're looking at the stars when you hear that intro and that kind of like da-da-da that comes over the top. I'm not going to try and sing parts <laughs> of the song. But yeah, it's, it's the this is one of the few songs where the lyrics do actually match up very well to the music. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great lead-off song for this album. It gives it the right amount of gravitas, but it also doesn't feel like a Genesis gravitas to it. It it feels like it's of that family, but it's certainly not a Genesis song. It it has its own atmosphere and its own approach to it. I think Mike's guitar solo it, in it is a perfect guitar solo for this song. And it's, it's not Mike. <laughs> oh, this one isn't Mike. See, no. see this nope. is something that when I was listening to it, I was like, oh, this sounds like one that, that Mike could really play. He played it live, I think. So is this uh, yeah. the Alan Murphy guy who's on there? Yep. Ah. Uh, all right. I sound Which I always thought now. it was Mike, too, because I've heard him play it live so much. Yeah. And it is. it sounds like him. Yeah. Whereas there's a one later on that definitely does not sound like Mike. Yes, you can tell yes. it's not him. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I, I noted that myself. We'll make sure, we'll see if we came up with the same one there. So has Mike said this isn't him? Or is this just something that people know from listening or recording notes and stuff like oh, that? I think it's in the uh, album notes. Or at least it was on, it was on the uh, Wikipedia entry. It does say Alan Murphy guitar. And I think in some of the online information about the song is that alan murphy played lead 
that's how I found mine too, is just doing the research. Okay. Yeah. So that shows that I am not the research heavy person <laughs> on this episode. Because all it says on, on the album itself, it just says Alan Murphy guitar, but it doesn't kind of credit what tracks they play on. It doesn't even credit what, what tracks the lyricists sing on, the, the uh, singers sing on here. That was something I saw on YouTube with that for some of the later tracks about, you know, a, a mystery singer who is not one of the two main guys. But yeah, so, okay, so Alan Murphy did a very <laughs> Mike Rutherford-ish guitar solo on this that Mike was then able to play live and all that. The basic thrust of my premise fits that it fits this song really well i'll just cut out the bit yeah, when and I got it kind of returns I, I, so. I, I, <laughs> oh no you got to leave that yeah. in of course yes <laughs> uh, yeah and, and actually yeah towards the end he does kind of like another follow-up guitar solo as it the song builds up to kind of that bah, bah yeah. ending which is i think a nice way to end the song too it kind of puts a a final stamp on it which is nice as opposed yeah. to just fading it out with the chorus repeated. And there's a little bit of a very light kind of keyboard solo at the end there too. That's kind of deeper in the mix, but I'm like, Oh, the keys aren't just doing a pattern there. It's actually a tiny bit of a solo there. Not, not anything that sticks out, but I was like, Oh, there's a tiny bit of something there. It was funny listening to this album version because I'm so used to hearing the radio version or the, or the video version that was on MTV. That's a little bit shorter. And I'm like, oh, there's a little bit more here to this song that's on the album. I think it's the longest song on the album at about six minutes or so, right? I think so. And I think that's why as well he was a bit surprised that it was chosen for the single. Because it's a very long single when you think about yes, it. Yes. Right. It's longer so, than Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even, cut, even yeah, cutting it, it down it's a little bit. 6, yeah. 10, yeah. Yeah. And even just cutting, I think the radio edit is still like 540 or 530 mm. or so. It's not, it's not that much shorter. So this, this song also was the first of the three videos that were released on this. So that used some of the, the film footage in there. And I also noticed rewatching it that I had forgotten that the end of it kind of segues into the band playing in this bar that plays into the following videos of this also. The continuing story of Mike and the Mechanics, as it were. Yes, and I think that's as well makes the bass pedals work at the end. You got that dun, dun, and then it goes straight into the... Um, all I need is a miracle, which I thought, <laughs> I think I'm so used to watching the music videos that I always just expect that they run together. <laughs> right. This, that is the segue there. It's its own little suite of music. Tom, since you didn't grow up with MTV in your household, did you ever see this video later on? It must have been later on that I saw them, or, or maybe I got some channel. I know there was uh, on regular TV, there was a Friday night videos at one point which for those of who didn't have cable was our way of getting videos. Uh, and then I would just see them. I don't know where else just shows that would play videos. I must've seen it. I know I was missing out on, on the kid opening the door and seeing the floating head of Paul Carrick, which can always frighten <laughs> any child. Yes. <laughs> I liked his little sort of Alexa, show me my father. That comes, <laughs> the little that tesseract right? that he comes out of to That's talk right. to. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> It, it is amazing what what passed for videos back in the day, you know, <laughs> that it was, yeah, videos were, were crazy when you think about them, uh, that give this visual association with the music. Um, and how much of a time would there have been between the movie being made in order to include it in the music video, even though the song came before the movie? 
yeah, I don't know. And I don't know enough about that and about kind of how, how that deal was struck as mm. it were, you know? So that's, uh, that's, that's a whole behind the music thing right there that we need to dive into at some point. It's almost like somebody with a website about this can dig into this and figure <laughs> this out. So <laughs> I think you have a new mission for an article about how did this happen? There you talk, go. Talk I'm writing that down. Stuff. There you go. Talk to the music supervisor, whoever was working on, <laughs> on this old, was it a Canadian movie or was it an English movie or was it, do we know much about the movie itself? That's a very good question. Yeah. Okay. Well, fans out there, if you if you know somebody who worked on this movie, give us a call. Shoot us a tweet. Two other quick things I just wanted to mention is that I believe Mike got the title from a 1972 movie called Silent Running because that was a space movie. And the song had this very spacey kind of feeling, which segues into the other thing I wanted to say is that in, I think it was 87 or 88, the Hayden Planetarium in New York City did a laser Genesis show. Oh. Uh, you know, you have Laser Floyd, Laser, whatever you want, where you go sit in the big planetarium and they have the amazing show on the ceiling, the dome ceiling. And so they did, I think, about six Genesis songs. And then they picked a song from each solo member. And the one they picked from Mike was Silent Running. And so given the whole spacey feeling to have the whole star effect and have this song start playing and the stars let up, da, 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 da. it was just amazing to see this this is probably the best song of that show because it just fits so well into the spacey kind of feeling cool excellent that sounds amazing yeah silent running is an excellent movie so i can recommend that cool how many other song titles have two movie titles in them silent running on dangerous ground (laughs) aka choke canyon (laughs) (laughs) that is that is a great trivia question now well with that we will move on to the second song and the second single from this album all i need is a miracle
my first note for this, I just wrote <laughs> 80s pop gloriousness perfection. It is, this song is perfect to me. There's nothing perfect. you could fix. Is it from the memories of the 80s for you for that? Or is it just everything about this song that's that's just perfect for you? I definitely can't remove memories from it. But in sitting down and trying to, you know, listen to it intently, just all the different best parts of 80s music happen <laughs> at different points. <laughs> right. So what would those best parts of 80s music be for you? Oh, just, I love the that build at the beginning, the drum machine, but when it, oh, I said I wasn't going to sing it, but da-da-da-da-da, when that happens, okay, it's just sure. like, oh, this is it. This is everything I need. I like I like the distant vocals in the background that you can't tell what's, what's being said, but there's something being said in that intro where it's like, da 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 and, and yeah, you just sounds, don't know what it is. So. Like at times, like a ringmaster or something saying, you know, yeah. roll up, roll up, or it's somebody in a market trying to sell something. Mm. And who is it? Is it Paul Carrick? Is it somebody else? Or sorry, uh, Paul Young? To me, it sounds like Paul Young and from live versions of it. It's it's Paul Young. But even live, I don't really know what what he was saying in that time. It's just like Gabriel E's yeah. a little bit. Just and his voice. Bit. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And his voice, I was surprised, isn't as rough as I remember. It's actually quite rocky, but yeah. smooth at the same time. Well, that's the thing. It's like, he I know that he had, between the two Pauls, he had more of the rock voice, quote-unquote. But he wasn't, he wasn't a screamer. It was a strong voice, and I was just about to say mellow, but I don't think that's the word to describe it. But smooth, I think, like you said, is is a very good way of, thinking about this voice and it has one of my favorite lyrics on the album which is the i know you were never right i'll admit i was never wrong <laughs> that's a good one i i actually wrote that down as like uh, when i was actually thinking about these lyrics and i was like what is this song actually saying i actually thought about sometimes i think about different arrangements of of tracks and i was like i think this song would actually be a great heavy metal song like, I think if, if like a metal band came out and did like a, not a speed metal version of this, but very much like a heavy kind of like, all I need is a miracle, you know, and it's kind of, kind of that type of thing, because the lyrics here could be with a, you know, a heavier guitar, if the guitar is doing the keyboard riff, which is a great kind of, like, that's a great riff to hang this song around. And if you do that with heavier guitars, I'm like, you could turn this into a dark and foreboding song. And the lyrics before the, um, if I ever catch up with you, I'm going to love you for the rest of my life. That can sound like a threat <laughs> if it's the <laughs> song the right way. And it's like, I will love you for the rest of my life. <laughs> I think so, at one point he even says, I'll love you for the rest of your life. Yes. Like, yeah. but then when you're gone, that's fine. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> then I'll just move on at that point. It's funny. So. I caught that the last time I listened to it. I'm like, oh, that's an odd way to put it. I'll love you for the rest of your life. <laughs> which is but, not going to be yes. much longer yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, wink, it, the, song, the song's lyrics it's a way to the way that it's really hard to kind of figure out what the song's saying is because the melody in the song is so upbeat and so positive and gives you such a good feeling but the actual lyrics when you read them are about like regret about love lost and you know i i really didn't think it was going you know i didn't really give you credit and blah 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 but it's just sung in such an upbeat and positive way that it's it's hard not to love the song and, and especially associate it 
with good feelings back whenever you heard this in the 80s. I, like Catherine, this brings back such memories. I remember there was an eighth grade dance. I was in eighth grade when this song came out. Eighth, eighth grade dances are never good <laughs> memories, Tom. Let's be honest. And there, there was a girl who was kind of like in the popular group, but she was also a very nice girl. And she invited everyone at the dance to her house the next day for a party. So you figured our friends who were in our little group, we're not going to go. We're not part of that. But like, what the heck? Let's go. So of course, we're probably the first ones to show up. <laughs> and so we're sitting in our own little side other kids are on their side and I remember the music playing and I remember this song specifically came on and just it was a good feeling we had made the step to go forward and go to this popular party and all I need is some miracles playing and that's all we needed to to make our leap into this group uh, so it brings back such memories of, of eighth grade that it's hard not to hear the song and, and be transported back there all right, I'll give you that's a good memory there. So that's I'm happy to hear a good memory associated with an eighth grade party or dance of some type. That's good. It's a great little song. And like you were saying, I, I really like and this is something that Genesis is also very good at is is kind of hiding lyrics in upbeat songs like Invisible Touch itself. When you actually look at those lyrics, it's kind of dark. And that's something that this album also has in a couple different places, this being one of them where it feels up and it is in some ways, but it's also not. There's a lot of conflicting messages in this song, which I was like, oh, this is this is interesting to me, you know, more interesting than you just think about it when it's playing in the background. If you're driving down a road in the summertime with the windows down, which is that's that's that memory for me. This this feels like a summer song. Definitely. There's something about it, though, as well, that I, in listening again, thought he's not actually a very nice person, whoever is singing this song, because there isn't really much remorse in the, I'll admit I was never wrong. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm not apologizing for that. So is the miracle needing to win her back? Is the miracle needing to be a better person? I don't know. We, we don't know. All he needs is a miracle, but all he really needs is you. So it's kind of like, are you, are you in this song, the miracle? Um, It's an interesting conundrum. Who knew that the philosophy of Mike (laughs) Mechanics would be so, such a rich vein to mine. Could this be a Mike lesson? It could be. We talked about Tony lessons. This could be a Mike lesson. So that things are never quite what they seem. That's, I think, something that you think about with Mike a bit more, that it's, it's a little bit of a mystery at times. Interesting. I like this song. So I, I generally give this the thumbs up. I think the video for this, if my, I wasn't able to rewatch the video before we started recording, but this is basically the bar recording, right? Kind of after. Yeah, and I, after... I, I like to think it's the same bar as the studio. It's probably not, but I like to think that <laughs> in my universe, this was yes. the same bar. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good crossover place. You know, that's Phil and Mike still know each other in their musical world. Yeah. And it's the one with the most celebrities as well. Possibly. There's Roy Kinnear, who we in the States probably best know as Baruch Assault's father from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, okay. And then, um, is it Victor Spinetti's in it? And then there's even a little cameo from Angie and the Kids at one oh, point. Okay. As he's running, as uh, Roy Kinnear's running down the street, you see Angie and Tom and Kate like right. duck into a doorway. And that's Mike's wife, An- yeah. oh, Angela cool. Rutherford. So, yes. Yeah, it's interesting. There, there's a lot, of, a lot of connections with it. And at the very so- end, he says to Roy, that's an easy way to make a living, which 
shows up later in another video. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. Mm, yes, let's uh, might have to wait a little bit longer for that. Oh, I just love Paul Carrick's bass playing in the video. I mean, that's <laughs> that just <laughs> yes. The uh, well, that was also on the um, Tom. You sent around a video that was from Top of the Pops, I think, of them doing this song, and where where he is also Paul Carrick is miming the bass with that. And I've seen worse versions of miming in musical instruments, but he just seems so bored doing it. <laughs> <laughs> like he's just totally not interested in like, like he's totally in the wrong place on the fretboard for different times, but he is, but he is miming in time. I will, I will give him that. Is um, it at least plugged in? That's one of my favorite <laughs> mime things where the guitar is not even plugged in. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. We would have to double check. <laughs> I think that, I think for on those type of top of the pops, you know, American bandstand type of shows, they're probably not. <laughs> so well, they're not allowed to do them live on like top of the pops. It has right. to be mimed. Miming, yeah. Sometimes some of those shows allow them to do live vocals, but not necessarily live music for whatever reason. And if you watch that top of the pops video on YouTube, you'll notice that Mike is wearing the same jacket he wears in the Invisible Touch video. It, yes. it was the style of the times. Yes. So with that, we will now crossfade, just like the album does, into Nature Sounds and Par Avion. Or Avion, however you want to pronounce things. I'll say Avion. It's definitely Avion, if you avion? want to know. Ooh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I will go with the, I will try the accent correctly. The next song is Par Avion. Mais oui. Oui, oui. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> probably always thought there was something a little different about this song, but it wasn't until I did research that I learned that it's John Kirby singing lead on this one. And I think I'd always thought it was Paul Young. Uh, so that was a, a wake up call for me. This was one of those ones that I, I knew there were, there were one or two tracks on this album that didn't have one of the two Pauls singing lead on it. And so as soon as I heard this one, I was like, oh yeah, this is one of them. And and again, one of the later tracks is the other one. The guy singing this fits this song really well. I think Very. it's actually his, his song, his vo voice is really, really nice in this song. It's a bit light for me. I was like, I like the song, but I also don't feel it kind of goes anywhere. 
but it has a nice mood to it. And I like the drum machine. I like kind of the atmosphere of it. I like the atmosphere maybe even more than I like the song itself. But it's not a bad song. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, this is nice. It was actually supposed to be harder and faster. It was originally written to be that way. And Chris Neal said, no, it should be a ballad. And this is what it ended with. Yeah, that's interesting. It's my favorite, personally. I, okay. Huh. I love the atmosphere. And it feels as well like it's almost the sequel to the other John Kirby song that we'll hear later on. They okay. both have similar themes to them. They're both... This one, you can feel that they're on Montserrat almost. You know, he's in <laughs> paradise. He's on vacation, missing his wife, probably. Yeah, you really get that sense of loneliness, yet while you're in a beautiful place with all those animal noises and... Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely an atmosphere for me, and I, and I liked the atmosphere of it. I'd be curious to hear a heavier version of this. Mm. Would it work that way? I'm, I'd be curious with that. I think some songs can work with different arrangements, and some can't. I'm a sucker for demos. I would love to hear Mike's kind of demo tapes of the little bits that were built up into these songs. Know what the what the origin of this was. Maybe just try and speed it up a little bit on your own at home. <laughs> True, yeah. Get some, yeah. Do some pitch shifting here and there. Maybe play so. it at 45, Mike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Here comes the night. <laughs> the, um... One thing I I noticed with this was that, again, Phil would borrow the lyrics uh, for this Another Day in Paradise Paradise. for one of his later songs. I'm sure it wasn't a direct connection there. And also there's the the repeated line in, in the equivalent of a chorus, I'm waiting here for so long, which I was like, oh, that's kind of Musical Box ish there from the end of Musical Box. Again, probably not an intentional thing, but of course, being Genesis fans, I was like, I wonder if, if he wrote this and even thought about the connection or if it was something that just wasn't even thought about at the time. I'm guessing the latter, <laughs> but, you know, that's just my own, you know, assumption there. I think it's probably these things seep in because, you know, if you write a lot, you probably have certain styles that come back and you don't even think about it but that's your voice and you reuse it and lyrics probably pop up kind of go go to phrases in your head that you know you kind of fall back on i yeah. i put it's very simple but stark yeah like, like it has a, a different atmosphere it is very simple i think it just goes you know the verses chorus versus chorus and it just repeats the chorus on its way out almost tony like chords i put for like just that kind of simple it's very simple but again very emotive yeah, it, it's one of these tracks that, with the drum machine on it, it's Genesis-y but not Genesis-y because it has some of those ingredients, but it's it's kind of Mike building a language for the Mike and the Mechanics albums that's different, especially different from, from his first two solo projects. This album feels much more confident, especially than Acting Very Strange, and more so than I would say even Small Creeps Day in some ways, 
because I think he he's just more experienced as a songwriter as time has gone on. Overall, I like it. I don't think it was played live ever. Something? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I want to say maybe they tried it with the new lineup at one point. Oh, okay. But no, I'm still not sure. Yeah. It's one that's often requested by Yeah, fans. I could see that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see the laser light show of this one. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. got, you know, that the drum machine sounds just like drops of water falling off of leaves. And then you've got that sort of gong sound that's like the ocean. Mm. And you really do feel like you're on Montserrat. That's <laughs> so this is also one of the Chris Neal co-writes, because generally the songs on here are are either or, either Chris Neal or, or B.A. Robertson. Mm-hmm. Do, do any of, do we have a preference overall? I think I'm a Chris Neal person. Um, I think I am too, by the way. In doing some of my research, I noticed that he, and actually a lot of personnel from this album, played on an album of one of my favorite French singers, Julien Clerc. And you can really hear, you can hear why I would like both of them. (laughs) But I mean, it's got Chris Neal, it's got a lot of the backing vocalists. I think John Kirby even appears on one of the albums. He had kind of his team of people as a producer that he would use and as a writer that he would use for some of his acts yes. that he would produce. Interesting. Yeah, I think I, overall, and maybe that's because he's he is also the producer. And I, I certainly like the B.A. Robertson songs, but I think that, that the Chris Neal ones, for me, work a little bit better. Tom, do you have any preference or? Uh... No. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, that's, I, would say I like I like. Both, I mean, there is tracks I see written by Mike and Chris. I see tracks written by Mike and BA. And I think they're each has some that are among my favorites. Cool. The best yeah. part about them as well is that Mike chose them because they were the first two on a list that he was provided by <laughs> hit and run of people to possibly write with. And he just went, yep, those first two will do. And <laughs> Mike, Mike certainly puts thought into things. <laughs> there are times that he's just like, oh, yeah, those are great. Let's move along with that. So, well, if it hadn't worked out, I'm sure they would have been fired. But <laughs> Exactly. So well, I feel he, bad he had... for uh, Xavier and Zed. They just didn't have a chance <laughs> on that list. That's right. Yes. And the one other Phil connection is that this was used in a uh, an episode of Miami Vice this oh, month yes. called Yankee Dollar. Now, I just only because I looked this up, I didn't have MTV. I didn't watch Miami Vice. You'd think I didn't exist in the 80s, but I did. <laughs> you were there. You just just not having cable or not watching some of these shows. I, I was not a big Miami Vice person either, but I, I remember watching specifically the Phil episode. Well, if this um, had been on Knight Rider, I would have remembered. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> we'll now move on to the last track of Side A, where we'll all be hanging by a thread.
I was impressed by this song because it took a minute and nine seconds until the vocals kicked in. Uh, this is one of those ones that that as it was moving along, I knew this was one of the rockers on the album. And I was like, oh, when are the vocals coming in? When are the vocals coming in? And, and it takes its time to get there, which is, again, another thing I like generally about songs that aren't in a rush. And this was certainly one of those tracks. Although, again, it's only maybe a little over four minutes long. It's not super long, but it does have a great rocking feel to it. Still not sure about the drums being re I mean, they might just be played electronic drums, but which was the the thing at the time, but it was something that I was like, oh, this is this is good. I enjoy this. Well, being a big progressive rock fan, I always love songs where the intro is almost as long as other pop songs altogether. So the fact that <laughs> right. it, like, it goes a minute and you don't even hear any lyrics, I just love it. It's, it's the hardest track on the album, I believe. And re-listening to it, I probably haven't listened to it this in years, but when this came on, the, my first thought I had was Dividing Line. Okay. From, uh, yeah, from Calling, Calling All Stations. All stations yeah. Yes, it just has that same kind of hard rock, like we're, we're building up to something. So you can definitely see what the hand Mike had in Dividing Line, given how this song builds up. Yeah, it has, it has that driving feel to it, which works. So I like the lyrics to this. I think that the it all ties into that metaphor of hanging by a thread, this song. And again, I like that in songs where it doesn't have to be about something, but everything in this song gives me the same tense feel. I would agree with you. I think Um, at first I found it maybe a little busy, almost in an acting very strange sort of way. Like there are songs on there that just, it's a lot more polished than that album, but there sometimes you feel like there may be too many elements going on, especially at the beginning. But I love the lyrics and that you throw a length of rope, I grab, you hope. It's just enough to hang myself. The It's kind of that, I don't know, staccato or really punchy feeling works very well. And then it made me appreciate the music more, if that makes sense. And my understanding is that Mike pretty much wrote the most if not all the lyrics for this album like it was a lot of there was something i think on the wikipedia that that said that he wrote most of the lyrics and the collaboration was more on the musical bit but that was my understanding i don't know if there's any other different information catherine that you might have about that Um, i tried to find proof going into this of who wrote what there are definitely lyrics that make me feel like it is mike like as we were talking about that um uh, the I know you never right. I'll admit I was never wrong. Reminded me of blue girls come in every size, some are wise and some otherwise. That's a very Mike lyric, and I think he likes to play with words like that. So it would suggest to me that he did do a lot of the lyrics. Yeah, I think that that feels right, especially on a solo project. I think you do want to. If it were me, I would want to write most of the lyrics. Certainly collaborate with people, but I think that you'd want most of those lyrics on an album that you're basically in charge of to be coming from you. The one thing about this song that I would be a little critical of is that I thought kind of the middle bit, the middle eight was felt a bit unfinished to me. Like there were no lyrics in there. It was more of kind of an instrumental bit that didn't do a lot instrumentally in there. So it was more like, Oh, I, I, it feels like there should be a little bit more in here, but there's not. It's a little, it's a little sparse, but then it goes into a section where there's like a guitar solo and some effects. 
was this was this the other track you kind of thought someone else did the guitar work was it this bit after the middle eight where it goes back into some of the effects and the guitar i guess it could have been mike oh it's it's actually a later song where i'm like oh this is definitely not mike in take the reins um yeah. this one you know it, again it's it could be half and half, you know, I, I'm never quite sure, you know, I got it wrong about silent running. So I will, <laughs> I will, I will take myself out of the running for determining Mike Rutherford on this song. This was the concert opener on this tour. I think they opened with hanging by okay. a thread on, okay. the, on the tour for this album, which is a good, which is a great opening song. I mean, it really puts the audience in a pumped up mood and it was supposed to be the first single. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. And then some, yes. one of the Atlantic reps, heard silent running and it's like no you got to make silent running the first single and so they they did and who knows alternate history if hanging by a thread had been their first single but it was silent running and that's the history we have and this was never a single that's interesting too that they they didn't decide to do this kind of later on with that overall i think that i like this song like it's it's a good rocker i like the prominent keyboard riff in it and there's some good bass in the end of it you know again mike being a bass player there's there's one or two examples on this song on this album of the bass standing out a little bit but there's not much of it it's not a bass player's album but you wouldn't necessarily expect that from mike his bass playing although he's very good at it is very within the song it's not showing off but I noticed it on this song that there were a couple little bits where I was like, oh, I can really hear the bass here. Um, but yeah, overall, I agree with Catherine about the lyrics. I think I even noted the same lyrics you did about this, about the whole rope metaphor. Uh, and Paul Young does great with the vocals. Thumbs up. Definitely. Cool. Well, we've reached the, the turning over the LP time of this album. And so, Tom, if uh, this is now our slightly new tradition of kind of reading some viewer viewer uh, some listener comments tom do you have any comments that you'd like to focus in on here sure i'll, I'll open up the mic mailbag and then something spoke and this is what it said to me you got mail baby yeah uh we did we get it uh, <laughs> yes. you know when we put this out i think a lot of people were excited that we're talking about this album I, I don't know if it gets talked about much and i think a lot of people probably had good memories of it like we did i'll start like I usually do with kind of like the, the bad news first and then go to the good news. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Dave Hampson said, sorry to be obvious, but Silent Running is about the only good track on the mid 80s cheese fest. Ooh. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> All right. Getting a little bit better now. I think there weren't actually, there weren't that many negatives. I think that was the only one I picked up. Uh, David Broadbent uh, from Down Under says can't go past the awesome keyboard intro and mood of silent running love the guitar solos but i believe that's not mike yeah well spotted yeah. <laughs> also shows that at least mike knew how to end a song unlike too many genesis 80s 90s fade outs yeah but there's still fade outs on this album too so and there were there were songs that atlanta confusion ends you know on invisible touch there's other examples you know i think people overdo that oh there's so many songs that fade out and i I never cared. I don't know. I'm going to get on <laughs> my soapbox and say, I never cared about songs fading out until people started making fun of it. I'm like, songs always fade out. I was like, Sometimes what's the problem Sometimes it calls there? for a fade out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. A uh, couple more. Brian Rotkamp says, this record is a good combination of everything. Rock with prog, different lead vocals and keyboards with guitars. I love how dramatic it can be. Plus I saw them live at the tower and they were awesome. 
So he must have been one of the ones at that show, probably uh, t- the tower in Philadelphia, I assume. Uh, and the last one, Alex Talander. I love the opening two tracks are really strong with Paul Carrick and Paul Young. Each do a great job, respectively, showing off their great abilities as singers. I love how even though there's no Tony or Phil, drums play a big part, and especially keyboards, in all Mike and the Mechanics albums. Which I, I'd say for this one, I'll go with keyboards, I'll agree with for this album. <laughs> mm-hmm. Drums, I, yeah. they're there. Like there isn't anything where I'm like, oh my God, did you hear that drum fill? Or did you hear that, the way that intro it's that typical 80s drum machine where like it, they wouldn't stand out, but the, the keyboards, like, it, like I mentioned before, there's some like Tony-ish chords in there. Yeah, I, I was about to say the same thing that I think the the keys here, I, I do wish that the sonic palette of the keyboards was a little broader. Like there's a lot of that high kind of like ding, ding, ding kind of... <laughs> sounds that are used in a lot of different songs on this album that was that it is very mid 80s it was kind of the new sound of the era i think just as a longevity thing i i wish that that sound wasn't as prominent on the album but it's also used well here so i'm not going to (laughs) complain about it yeah i think that the i agree overall with those comments i think except for the cheese fest one i think that I was actually, while this is certainly an album of the 80s, there are much cheesier 80s albums mm-hmm. out there than Mike and the Mechanic. So yeah, so overall, I, I, I see where those comments are coming from. So thank you all for putting in your time. Yeah, we'll talk about the poll later on. I am curious to see if there will be surprises in the poll. Mm-hmm. Probably <laughs> not, I'm thinking, but, but we'll see. We'll see how it ends up going. When it comes to cheesiness, I think a lot of that is hindsight as yes. well. Right. It's not something that in the time, like it's not a bad thing for music to be of the time it was made in. Mm-hmm. You know, this sounds like the mid 80s because it's an album from the mid 80s. You know, what do you expect from it? Does it make it timeless? Eh, not really, but music isn't necessarily made to be timeless. It's mm-hmm. made to be of its time. These songs still get played now on the radio. So obviously... It's timeless in some ways because that's the sound that some people still enjoy to hear. That's not that's my argument pro mid eighties <laughs> Mike the Mechanics sound and a sound that a lot of people now still emulate. You still get a lot of those same drum beats on songs that are I mean, coming the, out the nowadays. Invisible Touch, the drum machine, the, the electronic drums used on that. That gets a lot of guff now, but that was yeah, it was eighty six. That's what you did. You didn't think about it. And and I do think that, that Genesis and the associated, associated solo projects knew how to use drum machines really well as not just keeping the beat, but like in, in par- Avion, <laughs> then it's like that's an example of a drum machine pattern that that whole song is built on that I know that Phil would always joke about these Mike Rutherford drum patterns he'd come up with that he's like, oh, the beat's on the wrong place and everything, but but they really work, you know, that works, that sets the mood for that song really well. And so I would, uh, I would give that a thumbs up overall. And we can't forget as well that a lot of, you know, the Genesis family were the first people to make these sounds. I mean, Genesis and Mike and the Mechanics really pioneered a lot of those drum machine sounds. I mean, Mike even went to the factory in Japan and like got the first ones off of the the production line and gave them to the rest of Genesis as gifts, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, I think I think it was that, or or they or the company gave them as gifts. I, mm. I forget the exact details of the story, but but you've got the the basic thrust of it there that it was something that they were they were on the ground floor of figuring out ways to use this 
in their music and just not as a straight, oh, let's do a boom, boom, keeping time type of thing. It was actually making parts that were important to the song. So we'll now jump into the second half of this album with a very happy, upbeat number. I get the feeling. squeeze and Huey Lewis in the news had a baby it would, it would be this song <laughs> yeah I could see that my first comment happy. happy you know this is one of those songs that's just very up it's a Paul Carrick song and it really fits his voice really well and I, I think it's great I think overall this is one of the highlights of the album for me I saw them mm. do this live when I saw them in 89 and it was a great bit of the live set too I thought it was just a very it's hard to go wrong with the song like that's this why i was surprised it wasn't a single i mean this seems like a perfect yeah 80s happy feeling song we're having a good time fake horns i, I was i was gonna Love say mike there's horns. something about the song you know i have a problem with <laughs> yes i was that's why that's why i brought if it you're up gonna make it sound just like horns just use horns especially when when mike just had done the earth wind and fire stuff with for abacab it's so obviously just that sound of keyboard horns in the eighties that it's like, yeah, this is, this is not cheese, but it is that sound. And I like that sound. I think it works for this song. I like it too. At one point it even almost sounds like an accordion. Like it goes so (laughs) fast and like up and down that it almost simulates the accordion sound. I had in my notes for this, that if any of these songs were a TV theme song, or an ad for Payless Shoe Source, it would be this. If it had a music video, you can just see Paul chasing some young woman around a shopping mall. <laughs> yes. Again, thinking about different arrangements of these songs, lyrically with this, if this were kind of slowed down and done more in a open door, dukish type of arrangement, I was like, this would fit. This would be that type of song that if you did, it could feel very different if you slowed it down and kind of did it more with guitars versus keyboard horns and stuff like that, you know, just make it slow and depressing. And I'm like, Oh, it fit perfectly on Duke like that. I like the organ sound on this. Again, it's that kind of eighties fake Hammond organ sound, but Mm -hmm. it, it, again, it works with this song. I think Paul Carrick does a great job because he's, I think his background was more in line with what this song was like kind of blue R and B ish a little bit kind of getting that feel and that groove. And that's why uh, I think he probably sings this song better than he sings Silent Running, which was a little bit different for him. But uh, I mean, I think he sings both songs great, but this one really fits him. 
and he sang with Squeeze. Exactly. Yes. So that's mm. that Squeeze connection there too. To be slightly critiqueish of it is that I, I it feels like it should go on. This this is a song I felt should actually go on for a little bit longer at the end. Like I wanted a, a little bit more. Oh wait, Catherine. I have the exact opposite note. Oh, okay. <laughs> this goes on a bit long. And when we were talking about fade outs earlier, I thought maybe should have faded out a little bit earlier. Ah, okay. Three seconds in, maybe should have. <laughs> uh, no, I love the song, and it's a wonderful mood change after the end of the last yeah. side. But I did feel it kind of meanders a bit at the end and there's kind of that sing- singing over top that doesn't really go anywhere and yeah i get that I, I just i just felt like there should be more and maybe it's that singing at the end that i'm like yeah that could have been replaced with something else that would have mm. you know whether a guitar solo or something on the keyboards or some of these songs are just two verse songs there's not a third verse and i'm not i can't remember honestly if i get the feeling is one of them these songs were kept tight which is both a plus and a minus because sometimes I want, if I'm enjoying a song, I want it to go on a little bit longer, but maybe a third verse would make me go, okay, this is going on a bit too long. And maybe that's what I was kind of hoping for with this is that I'm liking this mood. Let's keep it going for a little bit. And it just ends kind of with Paul vocally riffing over the chorus, like one more time. And that's kind of like, all right, that's all it's got. Like it, it would have had a nicer, stronger ending, I think, than just let's sing the chorus again and just have Paul doing some yeah, yeah, hey, hey kind of thing. <laughs> That's a good compromise. <laughs> there we go. So there we go. On our remix of the album, we will we will yes. fix this so that <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get some real horn players in Excellent. to please Tom. Maybe we'll maybe we'll both keep the the horn the keyboard horns, but add some real stuff in there as a mix, you know. We'll now move on down to the races and we'll take the reins. an avid equestrian despite the thematic title it's possibly one of my least favorite Ooh. ones on the album and that's i still like them all but for me i think this one does the least for me and my biggest note about it was what is it about <laughs> it's one of the few ones that i don't really know what's going on in this song you can tell that it's sort of 
Paul Young has his stamp on this. By the time you get to this song, and by the time it starts, you're like, this is a Paul Young song. Like, he's set it up enough coming into it, you're like, okay, I know what's going to happen here. But, I mean, lyrically, not so much, but musically, yes. <laughs> right. This is this is another one that I thought could be, I don't know why I was thinking some of these songs could be metal, metal songs. I'm not even a big fan of metal, but I'm just like, oh, maybe, maybe the opposite of Mike and the Mechanics in the mid-80s is heavy metal from that same era, or like hair bands. And I'm just like, I could see this being a harder song with heavier guitars and stuff like that maybe a little bit kind of bigger drums and stuff in there. I thought that this was an okay song that was kind of let down in the arrangement a bit. It, it just, it didn't go anywhere. It, it's a later in the album track that is definitely an album track. That's like, Oh yeah, we have that song. This can be on the album. You know, it's, it's good enough. Mm. And, and it's not, again, it's not bad, but it doesn't, it didn't do a lot for me. And this was the track that had the crazy guitar stuff uh, near the end. Yes. I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is not Mike Rutherford playing this. Or if it is, I'm very impressed that Mike Rutherford could bring this out of him. It was so not his style that I was like, oh yeah, this this has to be Alan Murphy on here. It made me think of that the story that I know about how Mike almost worked with Van Halen. Right, and, yeah. Halen, and you think, oh, is this getting closer to what that might have sounded like? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Could could Van Halen have done a guest on this spot? And and yeah, it would have been actually fitting for his style. But yeah, who knows? Maybe this was something that he would have presented to him as saying, hey, here's something you could play on. I, uh, the Footloose soundtrack called, it wants its song back. <laughs> <laughs> this is the song that yes. they play during any 80s montage where the main character is bettering himself. He's striving up. He's going for the moment. He's taking the reins. He's going to overcome the bad guy. And it's <laughs> any 80s montage could, could use a song and it would fit perfectly. And, and like Catherine said, I, I had a note that if I had to pick a weak track from the album, it would, it would be this one. Because now that's all I think yeah. about when I hear the song is, is Kevin Bacon dancing or, or somebody trying to overcome the odds. So I can say yeah. pull-ups. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In a in a rocky soundtrack too. I I could say that this is well, not just a Footloose comment. I've never seen Footloose. I've never seen Footloose either. Wow. Why am I talking to you, people? Of that <laughs> well, I told you, I, I was absent in the eighties, so that's my excuse, Mike. <laughs> There's well, there's a lot of those like I, there's a lot of those '80s teen type of movies that I just was not interested in as an '80s teen. I think I'm like, I'm already a teenager in the eighties. Why do I want to see movies about teenagers in the eighties? It was not, it was not my thing. So there's a lot of those movies. I didn't see the breakfast club until I was probably in my early forties. And at that point I was like, Oh, all right. Yeah, I get this. You know, I, I totally get why it was big in the eighties, but I was like, yeah, all right, it's fine. You're really not missing much with Footloose. I'm sorry, Kevin Bacon, but (laughs) yeah. But yeah. So yeah, it sounds like all of us are kind of in agreement about Take the Reins that it was not, it was not our favorite on the album. Well, then we'll move on to the next track on the album, uh, which is a John Kirby vocal, You Are the One. It's a movie you've seen 
Tom, you hit the nail on the head with your little <laughs> miming there of like, there's the ding and then you look at your watch and it's like, how long is it going to be until the music starts again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a track that it both, you know, sounds very kind of what I said about uh, I get the feeling to be rearranged. I almost think you don't need as much rearrangement to make this sound very dukeish, very kind of open door, very alone tonight type of arrangement. But this is so, so 80s. We were just talking about, you know, coming from Footloose, you know, before. This is 80s teen movie, you know, somebody staring into a candle, wistfully wondering where their love is gone type of thing. I'm like, this, this is <laughs> 80s. As close to 80s cheese for me as this album comes, this is that track. Wow. He's gone to Montserrat. We've, this is the one that I think is the prequel to Paravion, because this is, again, about watching somebody fly away. Ah, okay. and being separated and it's another john kirby and i just feel like they really pair very well together yeah and i can't help but the here you know you're making it all worthwhile i always replace that with you're taking it all too oh, hard okay. <laughs> because they sound so similar yeah. to me tom you seem maybe surprised oh. by our comments when i originally was re-listening to this i had and i don't know why this came to my head but i thought Okay, this is a better song than an 80s pop album deserves to have. Okay. But then okay. another friend sent me their opinion that it's just sh schmaltzy schlock. And then you said it's typical <laughs> 80s cheese as close as you can get. I'm like, I must be hearing a different song or my ears are hearing it differently. <laughs> I, I think it's a, I really enjoy the song. I love that the first note starts like kind of like a, a teaser, like kind of like a longing. And it finally then you're pulled in when it starts proper. I also wrote that it reminded me a little bit of Open Door, like you mentioned. And I think it's a, a better Mike Love song than Your Own Special Way. Yeah. Well, we all know how I feel about Your Own Special <laughs> I mean, Way. I so I was uh, pretty low. So. No, I, one of my comments I said is that this, I thought the chorus of this was really good. I actually do like that aspect of it. My 80s cheese comment earlier was not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it is just more the observation of, that's what this is calling to me about. But also that that this, I like this song, but it's also not a song, it's not a style that I like very much. Okay. It is more within this category of type of song, it's probably as good as it's going to get for me, which is not 
very good, but it's okay within that category. That's more about how I measure this. It's not, I actually don't think there's, besides maybe Take the Reins, I don't think there's a bad song on this album. It's just that it's, it doesn't, it doesn't connect with me like it might with you, Tom. I'll take that. All right. It'll just be, yeah. I'm falling more towards the Tom camp, I think. I think it's a lovely, a really lovely song. You are the one who agrees (laughs) with me. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Which is the important thing. I would be curious to know if this ever was used in an 80s teen movie. I would guess not. I think we would all know about it if it was. I could see us, you know, Tom, shooting our own video for this. You know, we talked about some songs really fitting some moods. And this is one of those ones that I'm like, yeah, this is this is 80s teen right here. We've got almost a whole movie from like, I get the feeling where we've got our little like mall montage, then take the reins where we're getting pumped. Now it's the love ballad. <laughs> What's going to happen next? Should, should we should we start a rumor on this podcast that this is actually a concept album? Is this actually the entire soundtrack to On Dangerous yeah. Ground? <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, I think get on it. People. I think you're right. We could find yeah. the thread of the story. Oh, we definitely. can then hang ourselves by it. But... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we're now going from being the one. We're now going to take a call to arms. Can we dispel the myth 
that this is a Genesis song that Mike recorded. Yes, we can. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right, because this is something that I often see like, oh yeah, this was a leftover song from Abacab. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It was a riff that mm-hmm. Mike had that was in the Abacab sessions that just never went anywhere. And I'm assuming it's that kind of the big chorus, da 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 da. Like I don't know for sure, but that's what I've always assumed was the riff that Mike liked and wanted to build this song on. Does anybody know for sure what the bit is that was from Abacab? Or I do not, and I wish yeah. I did. This would be a, a train spotting Mike Rutherford question to ask him. Like, <laughs> what's the actual riff there? I got in the mid eighties, a picture disc interview that was with Mike and Tony right before, uh, not Mike and Tony, Phil and Tony right before uh, Invisible Touch came out. It's a great interview. It's like an hour long. And they talk about Phil and Tony as an aside, say like, oh yeah, this was, uh, was basically said, oh yeah, there's the song that, that was the riff. Tony says that he's like, oh yeah, Mike called up and asked if, if, if he could use it for the album. And Phil's like, oh, he never called me up. He's like, and I think either Tony or uh, either Tony or Phil says like, oh, you should have you should have told him that you were already using it for an album and he couldn't use it after at this stage or something like they were kind of joking about not giving Mike permission to use this. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> Maybe I'll even drop that in into the podcast here. We'll have a little bonus Tony and Phil visit in the middle of this podcast. Uh, it was a bit. I can never identify the bit. I. I can tell you about the bit. The bit, it was a bit left over from Abacab. Um, we never developed. It was actually called Fast Bass. Fast Bass Riff, yeah. And it was just a bass riff, and I, I played this kind of chord sequence over it, which, which ended up being the, um, the chorus of this song that Mike did. He rang me up when he was in the middle of recording the album and said, oh, by the way, is it all right if I use that bit? You know. So I said, I couldn't remember the bit at the time, and he sang it over the phone. I said, well, I've got no plans for it. So <laughs> I, was, I, was, it I wasn't around. He didn't ring me. I'd have infringed it, man. I'd put a copyright on it. <laughs> well, I read, yeah, that it was a piece that, or whatever bit of it they used, they just didn't really care for it or wasn't going to be good for them. So that's why Mike is like, can I use it? And they're like, sure, why not? Yeah, we're never going to do anything. Which like I, I, so. I think at the t- time, this once I got into Genesis and once I knew... The connection uh, when I was reading the liner notes and that this was a song that was co-credited to Phil Collins and Tony Banks, it kind of like shot to number one for me. Like this is a quote unquote Genesis song. And I didn't know that it was a reject. I just figured, well, maybe they joined him to write a song for Mike and the Mechanics. I, I had no background. So I think for a long time, this was my favorite song because I'm like, this is basically a Genesis song. Right. Interesting. <laughs> People see the credit. And I think in some ways, it might have been almost more of a courtesy credit if it was from the jamming and stuff that they were doing in, in preparation for Abacab. It really could be a mic riff that he presented to them and they were like, ah, no, but but it did come out of a jam, so maybe it is kind of credited to all of them and everything. Like, But outside of that, I think it's a pretty, it's, it's the darkest song on the album, I think. Yeah. Um, and I certainly like the mood of it. I think the verses, I liked that, Paul Young and Paul Carrick kind of trade off, you know, line like half the verse is, is Young, half the verse is Carrick. That works for me. And I would like actually, like that didn't happen much in the mechanics. And I think it works on this track. It does. I think this is one of my favorites because it kind of, it has everything and it has everyone in it. <laughs> yes. I mean, even not just Tony and Phil, but it has, you know, both of the Pauls. It has Gene Stashuk from Red 7, who might okay. produce their album in the 80s and he does that kind of 
scream over the top when it starts. Right. He was actually supposed to do more vocals on the album, but um, I think he, something happened with his voice. He got sick. Oh, and so okay. he, couldn't, he was actually flown out to the farm for the recording, but uh, couldn't do it in the end. And I think John Kirby's on this one as well. Yeah, there's there's a lot of vocals on this, and yeah. Christopher Neal's probably in the middle midst there somewhere because he <laughs> of his singing stuff. And there's a, the other kind of backing singers credited on this. I love the verses. I do think the chorus is a little happier than the song needs. Like I think almost the chorus should still be a little darker than it is, <laughs> but that's a minor point for me. Well, it's, so. it's funny. It, it's not on this album, but I have the same feeling about the song. Nobody's perfect. Like the verses yes. are dark and heavy and then it gets to the chorus and it's yeah. all happy go lucky. Maybe that's yeah. the same way here. And I, I do love the chorus on this one, but I wish because it's such a dramatic song that I wish it, it built up to some kind of finish. Whereas the chorus then just gets repeated until it fades out where I, I think it has a nice beginning and, and it's one of those like dark songs and a, a payoff would have been good on this one as opposed to a fade out. This is one that I think could have, even if it, it reached some kind of climax and then went down to a fade out would have been fine, but it kind of just reaches the second instances of the chorus and just repeats the choruses and fades out again. So that's, that's how I feel about uh, Tony Banks's song, the border on bank statement that I think has a song that really can have a build to it. And then it just stops and it ends. And I'm just like, oh, it, it feels like it needs a closure to it. And that's, I think, the same thing with this track. It needs just a little bit more to it. Again, not that it's quite unfinished, but that it, it needs a, a conclusion. One thing I'm not sure if it was done on purpose, but it made me think of Jerusalem, William Blake, when because it has those lines, bring my bow and it has bring my spear oh, then, okay. at the end. So I don't know if, because of course Jerusalem is a hymn is so well known, especially in England, that I wondered if that was done on purpose. Yeah, I, I, I'm not, I've never seen a comment about that, but I would, I think that makes sense. But yeah, this is the kitchen sink song where everybody's involved. There's every yeah. vocalist, every writer is in there. Even writers who aren't on the album are in there. It's it's a good song. and and But I also think it gets a lot of fan love because... It has Mike and the, it has Tony and Phil as writers on it. There's that aspect of it. Tom, I totally get what you were saying about Nobody's Perfect because that's a song I really love the verses of. And then the, the chorus does kill it for me. It's like, I, it just, it's, it doesn't ruin it, but it comes kind of close for me because it's, mm. it's, it's that, it's too contrasting. And there, there is the contrast here, but it's just not as, it's not as dramatic a contrast between the verses and the chorus. Right, there's like a 180 on the mood of the song and kind of throws you off a little bit. Like you think you think you're going one direction and then it throws you off, but not in a pleasant way. Exactly. Well, well now actually we've reached the last track of the album where we're all going to get taken in.
I love this song. I love saxophones. I am such a sucker for 80s saxophones. And when that comes in, I just think, oh, this is where I want to be. I think it's a great way to end the album, especially when you have the rockier singer doing the nicer ballad to sort of take us out. I, I do not love sats- 80 saxophones, <laughs> but I love this song. And so the saxophones do not do not bring it down for me at all. It actually works in this song. And I really like it. And I think it's it's actually, the mood of it is great. And this is another one that maybe I realized it back in the 80s when I had this album and listened to it. But the the lyrics are totally an opposite from what it feels like. Because it feels like kind of a, a wistful romantic song, like almost like I'm taken into your heart type of thing. And then when I really listened to the lyrics this time, I was like, oh no, this is not, <laughs> this is not a good, this is not a happy song. This is a, I've been fooled and, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a fool without a friend. I've been taken in, you know, there's one born every minute, meaning kind of there's a sucker born every minute. I was like, this lyrically is, is not what I, just kind of had an impression of it being without mm. thinking about it. And I love that. Yeah. This to me is the guy who didn't get his miracle. He's oh, sitting no. at the end, reflecting yeah. on Going his mistakes. Concept album. concept album. We're back to the concept <laughs> album idea. This is the, like Mike had Silent Running as his warm blanket song. This is my warm blanket song. Like you just get the cozy feeling, put a log on the fire to sit back with your cognac or whatever, and just take it all in and, and just let it ride the wave of this song. And I think it has the best lyrics on the album. I love the way the lyrics yes. flow, mm. the way that just the, the melody of them, it kind of remind me a little bit of the way the lyrics of throwing it all away kind of flow very nicely, uh, which I think is also mm. a Mike heavy song. It's doesn't, it's not in your face, this song, but it's just there and it's making a statement and it's just a lovely tune as I, would sum up and i love that it starts with the chorus basically you know the take and mm-hmm. taking and again you know those are and even the verses of this are not that separate from what you would think of as the chorus like this is it feels kind of non-traditional in that way where it both starts with the chorus and then the the verses are not they're not super versy it it's almost like it, it feels like to me that that normal description of of verse chorus or chorus verse doesn't even really fit this song it's more of just it is what it is as a as a totality it's it's a great mood and if you think about if you really pay attention to the lyrics you realize what that mood is but even if you don't it is that kind of what what you were saying tom it's it's that comfort it feels very relaxing because it's also the person singing doesn't feel bitter about any of this. It's more resignation of, oh yeah, taking in again. All right. You know, it's, it's not, it's not angry, which is nice because you could do a song like this and again, make it very angry if you do a different arrangement of it. And I'm kind of glad it's not that. So the, just the opening line, taken in, taken in again, wrapped around the finger of some fair weathered friend. I mean, it gets, points for alliteration just by itself but it's just such a nice the flow caught up in the promises <laughs> left out in the end it's just that resignation like you said it's yeah. just out there he's he's admitting he's just a fool and he's nothing he can do about it there are times like this when i when i do think 
that that Mike, when he is at his best, is the best lyr- lyricist in Genesis. When he's on with a song like this, it really comes out. There's layers to it that work on a bunch of different levels. You can think of it as a wistful love song, but it's not. And then when you hear it, you're like, oh, this is a much sadder song than you think it is when you first hear it. So I, I think it's great. I'm glad to hear you say that. That's something I often say as well, as I think Mike is at times very much the best lyricist in the band. He comes up with some really beautifully simple but well-crafted lyrics. Like, I'll go back to taking it all too hard. You know, that's one from Genesis where I'm like, yeah, that's that's a beguilingly simple lyric that has a lot of power to it. And And again, I think it's lyrically one of Mike's best in Genesis. I know people go to Ripples a lot as something that he wrote that's that's really good. And I do like that one. I do think it is among his best, but I think there there are others in in that category that work out. So but that's a different album than this one. So <laughs> yeah, I think the the saxophones don't bug me on this one. I think they actually fit the song. Um and that's I think- what I was gonna say is that they the saxophone is like the lyric on this. It's not overdone. It's morose and yeah, it fits it's just the song. another voice yeah. crying. And it's for yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not drenched in reverb like some saxes were in the eighties. Like it's 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 eighties sax. It's not that traditional eighties sax sound to me, at least. It's it's just saxophone used really well in this. And if they played this live, I'd be happy to hear it. They um, do sometimes, and yeah. Luke Juby plays the saxophone. Oh, okay. I, I haven't seen the new mechanics do it, and I don't think the old mechanics did when I saw them. Uh, I would have to check the bootleg tape I made of the show that I went to. Um, but that's, that's I think this is a great closer to the album. I don't think this would have fit anywhere else on the album. Mm. Um, and I couldn't think of another song. I mean, maybe A Call to Arms could have been a closer if I thought the ending of the song was a better ending. But but yeah, this I can't think of another one that would have ended the song. Maybe Silent Running could have actually ended the album well too, but that is also a great opener. And the video ends the triptych of the video story. How do we feel about the music video? I enjoy the music video. I like you know Richard Belzer, the comedian. He plays the dad of the family who has booked the cabin at the same time as the band and I, I get the feeling that kind of the band is actually taken in by the family not just in the cabin but they're also <laughs> on the road at the end and that's where uh richard belzer mentions he's a comedian and mike goes again that's an easy way to make a living but i think i would have rather have seen this video paired with a song like i get the feeling like a funny upbeat song taken in seems like the seems like the song that i'd want to see paul young standing by a river looking pensively into the air, like something a little bit more serious, whereas this video was a fun video and I could see paired with I Get the Feeling. So I I like the video. I like the song. I just don't like the pairing of them. But how does that work as well with the sort of the happier music and the sadder theme? So you've got also a happier video with a sad story. Mm. Hmm. (laughs) So many contradictions in my mechanics (laughs) that we did not think about before this. My memory of this video, I, I didn't get a chance to actually rewatch it before recording, but that 
it was I enjoyed all the mechanics videos and I kind of get why this was not as big of a hit as the other songs. I actually think it was kind of gutsy that it was a, a single yeah. because there are other songs like we talked about hanging by a thread and, and some of these other ones that I could see being more. I could even see you are the one being more of a single than than taken in in some ways. And also going with Paul Young versus Paul Carrick on this, where maybe Paul Carrick would have been too Paul Carricky on it, to maybe a bit too emotive on it. And this is just a a, a good song, Sun Well, <laughs> and was gives the rock voice something a bit more gentle to do. Thumbs up over all around for this track. Cool. Me too. All right. We've actually reached the end of the album. This is a, a short album. It's only, I, I saw on my, my CD player, it's a tick, a couple seconds over 40 minutes long. It's not an album that overstays its welcome, which is kind of nice compared to some, you know, albums that come out later in the CD era that can be a bit, a bit long at times. Catherine, did you say that this was your favorite Mechanics album at the start of this? I forget if, if you said that. I don't or think that I was... said which one okay. was my favorite Mechanics album. Oh, now I'm on the spot. <laughs> um, it's definitely very high up there, again, for memories. And I, I do think it's one of their best. I know, like, The Living Years, of course, has that one amazing song and other amazing songs. But as a whole, I think this album stands out more to me. This is a song, an album that, like, the Living Years has gotten all the reissue love and everything. And I've, I've said often that I think this would be a great album to get a reissue of, you know, whether it's a surround thing or, or with, you know, different demos or different type of, you know, even just collecting some of the single edits. Or there's one bonus track that I think showed up somewhere called Too, Too, what did I just had this memory wise? File. Too Far too, Gone? Too Far Gone. That's what I said it was, which is literally just. It sounds like a, an unfinished song. It's it's a basic track, music track with no lyrics on it. But it definitely has that verse-chorus structure to it where I'm like, oh, they just either didn't write lyrics for this or didn't quite know what to do with it. It doesn't sound very mechanics-y to me, but they were also, at the time, maybe didn't really know what the mechanics were. So it mm. was... It was something that, you know, musically might have fit more, strangely enough, on acting very strange, you know, yeah. which, you know, go and listen to that album, people. Give, it, give them all a listen. Give so. it a chance. <laughs> yeah. So I think the, the word for me for this album is atmosphere, because, I mean, they don't all match, but each one has a palpable atmosphere to it. If you're in a mood, this album has something that you can, uh, <laughs> you can listen to. And listen, I, I know... Mike and the Mechanics of all the solo careers is probably not, it's probably not my favorite. Uh, it's definitely not my favorite. There's no two ways about that. But there's always something that I can find that I enjoy in this. And Mike and the Mechanics itself can sometimes be the butt of jokes. I remember watching The Office, the, the original English Office, and I had it, I have it on DVD. And I think it was a, a cut scene where Martin Freeman's character is talking about Gareth. And he's like, all you need to know about Gareth is that his favorite band is Mike and the Mechanics. <laughs> and I might be getting the joke wrong, but that was the basic thrust of the joke. And I remember seeing that and I laughed about it, but I was kind of like, oh, that's that's too bad that that's like the butt of a joke there. Because I do think there's there's good music in here that if people give it a chance, and a lot of people have given it a chance, it's well worth listening to. Mike gets so. the last laugh. <laughs> 
<laughs> he does. He uh, does. He's still, you know, he's been able to rebuild the mechanics, you know, with the with the touring band that's been around for 10 years now. And they've put out new albums and the albums are pretty solid. I actually generally like the albums that they've put out. I do, um, And the fan base is really strong. They're a yeah. great group of dedicated people and it's a really nice environment to, yeah. to be and, in. And actually, Catherine, we met at the TV recording they did in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which was now four years ago. I think so. 2017, probably. And I I was happy to go there because I grew up right next to Asbury Park. It's it's good, A, to meet other fans in person who are not insane. And that (laughs) it's uh, the that not that Genesis fans are crazy, but Tom was at that show also. So we met at at that show. Yes. Yes. Tom and me as well. Yes. So, yes. So with that, do we want to talk about our own favorite tracks first and then go into the poll? That's that's what we usually do. Yeah, that's what I remind you we do every time. So, (laughs) yes. (laughs) And I can never remember who would like to say their first favorite uh, I'll track go first? First, because I, I I think I had a lot of trouble picking a song, and actually only voted before the podcast before I closed it, so I was probably the last vote. Okay, I was hopping between <laughs> four songs. All I need is a miracle. All I Ooh. need is a miracle, basically because of the memory that it brings back. Hanging by a thread because I just love the heaviness of it. A call to arms because I love the drama of it. But what I ended up picking was Silent Running. And the reason I picked Silent Running is that I think it's, it's for me, the most complete song, complete package of a fantastic intro, a fantastic atmosphere, great lyrics. I love the guitar solos. And then it comes to a, a final conclusion. So I think it was, for me, the one start to finish that I would put on above any of the others. I totally get that thumbs up i i hear what you're saying so Catherine, how about you what's your favorite it was tempting for me to pick silent running as well but i in the end went for par avion because oh. that's my comfy sweater <laughs> okay song of the album i find it's just perfect in many ways um that atmosphere as we were talking about before as i've said a few times now i love john kirby's voice it just feels like a nice moment where you can feel somebody's loneliness and yeah i like it very much it's simple but effective yeah simple and effective that's what i like so i i think i voted for many of the reasons that you voted for par avion i voted for taking it ah. there we go so it was you know, the mood of it. And I think especially once I kind of realized, you know, in my modern era, what the lyrics were, I was like, oh, I really like this. And it just, it hit me emotionally in a way that I was like, oh, I get this. I've, I've had these feelings. It's something that musically it worked out really well for me. And I was just like, yeah, this is, this is a good song that encapsulates what it's trying to say without being overwrought or overdoing it and it was good i think that if i thought about going with silent running like like tom did and everything because it is it's a great song and but it just didn't what i found through this album was that i liked a lot of it but i think longer term a a lot of the songs 
hadn't connected emotionally with me. So it was a little bit when I was first thinking about it, it was a little bit more clinical until I hit Taken In and I was like, yeah, is this song going to do it for me? And then it really did it for me. Taken In. And we all voted on yeah. different tracks. That's, that's, uh, good, that's yeah. going to be interesting. Taken In, I don't think is that far from Paravion. I think they have very similar drum beats in yeah. them. One's just a little bit slower. Yeah. But they, they're obviously related. They have the same yes. father. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So very cool. So now, Tom, I think we can reveal your glorious poll for this episode. Tom showed you his poll. It was uh, very interesting because there are nine songs on this album, and they kind of really had three that were very low, three that were kind of in the middle, and then three that were very high. So it was interesting that there were kind of brackets, okay, uh, groupings, if you will. I'll start with the bottom three, which these three songs got a total of four votes altogether. So, yes. Really? The very two Oof. at the bottom with only one vote and one percent of the vote, uh, where I get the feeling and take the reins. I'm I'm actually surprised that I get the feeling is that low. Take Me the reins, I could kind of right, see that it's a forgotten. But I, I did think I get the feeling maybe it doesn't make people feel as good as it makes me feel. I don't know. <laughs> that's a yeah, exactly. Or if I wonder if that's a lot of people's like number two or number three song. But not a lot. That's of generous. One. We'll, we'll say that. that. <laughs> All right. Uh, All and right. then, you are the one. Got three votes with two percent of the vote. So those were the bottom three. All right. But then you have kind of the middle bracket. In sixth place was Par Avion, with fourteen votes and eight percent. Mm-hmm. Okay. I expected it to be higher from the comments. A lot of people seem to yeah. comment that they liked that song. Yeah. Mm. Eight, eight people did, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all I need is a miracle. Was number five with eighteen votes, and that was not in the top Ooh. tier. Interesting, 11%. interesting. And it could be. I, I have a, uh, another friend who had written saying that it was great the fifty times he heard it in nineteen eighty five, but maybe it's that fatigue that it's the song you hear most from this album. So maybe people decided to go with a different. For some people, it might not have aged right. well, basically. Uh, number four hmm. in this uh, Keeping with the Middle group is Hanging by a Thread with 12% of the vote. Okay. Okay. All right. Then you've got the top three and the vote shoot up a little bit more. Third place, Taken In, 15% okay. of the vote. And only one more vote than Taken In was a call to arms. The difference was one vote. So those were very close. Call to arms got 16% of the vote. So it's interesting how those two are very different feelings. They come right after each other on the albums and they kind of fall into the same order here as number two and number three, leaving number one, Silent Running, which had more than double the second place. That was 35%. Most 58 people voted for Silent Running. That's a fair breakdown of the album in general. I, I Like you said, I'm surprised that, that Paravion isn't a little yeah. higher. I would have been mm-hmm. surprised if that was in the top three, but I, I, I'm not surprised at the three. Besides, all I need is a miracle not being in the top three, because mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be silent running, call to arms. All I need is as in a mirror. As, all I need is a miracle is the top three. So oh, that I would that's, have expected that too. Maybe yeah. other people just their eighth grade dance experiences <laughs> were not as good as yours. <laughs> right. They had, they had a lot of bad memories from eighth grade dances at that point. Actually, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm always glad when we're a little bit surprised by these yes. polls. So, uh, because Tom, your poll can certainly be surprising. Very surprising. Larry, I don't know what you're <laughs> going to get. 
Exactly. Cool. Any final thoughts on this album, Tom and Catherine? Oh, I think we've said most of what needs to be said <laughs> about the album. It's wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a better album than I think people give it. I'll, I'll say it's a better album than I give it credit for. So yeah. that's something that, you know, I always say that I like this album, but then when I, I listen to it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a good album and it's not even a begrudgingly good album i i generally liked this and for an album which is kind of an experiment on how to put together an album as well it worked out in a way that it it does feel like it's a band yeah definitely i i have to be happy for mike because after acting very strange and probably getting a little discouraged by his solo projects uh this came along and, and like everything just clicked everything the stars were aligned i said he had by happenstance happened to pick the first two producers on the list pick some great lead singers there are some really strong tracks on here there may be some that haven't really aged well since the 80s but there are some that seem to have aged like fine wine and, and still today 36 years later can still hit some feelings and hit some emotional places i don't listen to this album probably often like i think this was probably the most i've listened to it in in years but when i do it it brings me back to a place in the 80s when i don't know things were happy carefree mike's having a good time you can tell on this album that they're just (laughs) really having a a a good time putting together some good songs so i'll I'll probably put it on again in a few months or a year and revisit it and get those same good feelings back yeah, I, I, I agree with both of you. I think that this is, I'm I'm very happy to have revisited this album because, you know, it's good to break out of our comfort zone of what, for me, it's good for me to break out of my comfort zone of what I normally listen to. And sometimes I'll be like, as I said before, the mechanics and, and Mike stuff in general may be my, my least favorite of the solo career. Again, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that there's a lot of great music in there. It's an embarrassment of riches. And I think that I appreciate those riches a little bit more now, which I'm happy to do. So yeah, so that kind of brings us to the end. Catherine, why don't you give us a little promotion of yourself? Uh, talk about your Twitter feed, you know, your, your talk about where people can find you online. You can find me just about anywhere where young, cool, hip people are talking about Mike and the Mechanics. <laughs> Which well, is actually, MikeRutherfordNet.com. No, we, <laughs> we don't have a TikTok, but oh. no, MikeRutherfordNet.com. Or, sorry, MikeRutherford.net. Net. You're okay. getting me confused now. Um, <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at RutherfordNet and on Facebook. We also Excellent. have a wonderful, active um, Facebook group. If you just search for Mike and the Mechanic fans, it's a great bunch of people. Come join us. We'd love to see you. Excellent. Very cool. Tom, do you want to promo yourself or are people just happy to to go to Tabletop Genesis and you're fine? So thank you all for listening. We appreciate it. So with that, I'm Mike Lord. I'm Roche. And I'm Catherine Stratton. And we will see you next time on whatever we cover next for Tabletop Genesis.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes.